JC, I used to play a game where the neighbor kid would throw a brick at me, Sievert, coming to you with the second episode of Conversational Hockey. Um, I want to make sure each of these episodes connects to the previous one, that way you're not necessarily learning something entirely new every single time. So last time I talked about Wayne Gretzky, uh, and this time I want to pull it way back and talk about dynasties. Uh, the concept of what of a dynasty. And for the purpose of the next couple minutes, until I can really get into the nitty-gritty, uh, I'm going to temporarily define it as a team who wins a lot of Stanley Cups in a short amount of time. So what I want to get into, uh, into what conceptually a dynasty is and how a team forms a, a dynasty. And to really drive home the points, I have four dynasties since 1980, I'll be using as examples. I also want to add here that the driving idea behind this series, the reason I decided to make these, is to give you the framework to talk about hockey because it's something I'm interested in. And that even shows in the name of the series. Conversational hockey is a little joke. I'm not teaching you to be fluent in hockey, just conversational, which is a joke that only I will ever find funny. But you'll probably never have to talk about dynasties with anyone. So why talk about it at all if that's the mission? Who's out here thinking analytically about what a dynasty is? Other than me, of course. And put a pin in that for just a moment. It'll come back later. Uh, of course, first, before I get into anything, I'm going to throw out some definitions for you. That way, of course, later when I'm getting into it, I don't have to break up my flow. Uh, our first definition uh, is Grinder, which is a geospatial dating app meant for gay, bi, trans, and queer people. Oh shit, this is about hockey. A grinder is a player whose job is to play a physical game to tire out the other team and to keep them from having the puck. Uh, number two is uh, Sweep, or A Sweep, um, which is in a best-of-seven playoff series, uh, a sweep is when a team wins four games in a row. So if the King George Foxes win four games without Culpepper winning any, then King, then King George has swept Culpepper. Uh, number three is the clutch and grab era. Uh, the late 90s and early aughts were a time where there were very few rules about what a defenseman could do to the other team, um, which led to a lot of physical play against players, uh, both players who did and did not have the puck. Um, it was also a time of reduced scoring. Um, number four is forwards, which are obviously the offensive players. Um, but there are three forward positions that I want to get into. Uh, the first of which is a center, who plays the middle of the ice and has the most defensive duties amongst the forwards. Um, and then there's the left wing, uh, who usually plays to the center's left. And then, of course, the right wing, who plays to the center's right. Uh, and our last one here is two-way, or a two-way player, um, which is a player who is capable of playing both defensive and offensive sides of the game well. 
Um, it's most often attributed to um, forwards who play a particularly defensive game, um, but it can also be attributed to um, defensemen um, who play a pretty defensive style of hockey, um, but also you know can join in on the uh, on the rush and play an offensive game. So what exactly is a dynasty? Earlier I defined it as a lot of cups in a short amount of time. But how many cups is a lot? Is two enough? And what's a short amount of time? Is ten years enough time? Is two years too short? And to answer these questions I'd like to talk about descriptivism, which, if you've listened to me ever talk about linguistics, ever, <laughs> you'll have heard me talk about quite a bit, um, it's a framework or philosophy of studying a language by how a language is used rather than by how it should be used. Um, so the answer to our question of what exactly is a dynasty is, well, it depends. I looked into what dynasties from the last 40 years have in common to come up with my own easy-to-synthesize answer, but the complex is that whatever people call a dynasty is what a dynasty is. What I mean is that a couple of years ago, the Pittsburgh Penguins won two Stanley Cups in a row, which is no, by no means a small feat. But nobody calls this a dynasty, and that's because there's no convincing discourse that this is a dynasty, so it's not. But enough of that high-concept bullshit. Let's get quantitative. Let's get fucking empirical. Over the past 40 years, there are a few things dynasties have in common. First of all, they all have at least three Stanley Cup wins, and secondly, those wins took place in, at most, twice as many years. So if a team wins three Stanley Cups in five years, that's a dynasty, baby. You got, you got yourself a dynasty. If a team wins three Cups in 15 years, then that's just good long-term management. But doesn't that sound nice and mathematical? You can make a formula with that. You know, like a big looping letter D, or maybe even a Greek letter to show dynasty. Uh, I could call it the Sievert dynastic principle, because I'm just a hair egotistical. So we have the what, but let's get into the how. How does a team form a dynasty? Well, of course I have a theory, but first I want to add that I'm going to keep the theory and explanation to the playing rather than the business and management of a team. Um, that's obviously involved, but I'm way less interested in hockey team management than I am in, you know, hockey play. And in the previous episode, I touched on style of play over the course of an era. Gr Wayne Gretzky was able to use his era's open-iced and limited defense style of play to succeed. Well, my theory is that a dynasty is a team that is able to play the purest game of their era, a team that typifies an era style of play. But enough of all this theory and thinking about shit conceptually, let's get into some real-world examples. Let's talk about real dynasties and see if I'm right. Spoiler alert, I might be? First of all, the first one we have. In the early 80s, there was a team that just won cup after cup, four in a row from 1980 to 1983. They played a fast but gritty physical game and had a young phenom who is second to none at putting the puck in the net. That team was, of course, 
not the Edmonton Oilers. I'm talking about the New York Islanders. In the early 80s, there was a transitional period in the style of play between the run-and-gun 80s and the 70s, and the New York Islanders were able to capitalize on that style. They had hard-driving physical players, players who could grind the other team, like John Tonelli, Butch Goring, Bob Nystrom. They, had, um, they also had amazing fast forwards who could score and had great on-ice chemistry, like Mike Bossy, one of the best all-time goal scorers, uh, Brian Trottier, and Clark Gillies. And they had a phenomenal core of defensemen led, led by one of the best two-way defensive uh, defensemen of all time, Dennis Potvin. And lastly, they had a Hall of Famer goalie in Batlin Billy Smith. And the key for this team was definitely the combination of fast but grinding play. Even their big-name scorers like Bossy and Chachier were grinding in the corners, and even enforcers and grinders like Clark Gillies or Butch Goring were putting the puck in the net, because that kind of grind is designed to slow down the other team's momentum, and based on the fact that they won four Stanley Cups in a row, it worked. Hell, in 83, they swept Wayne Gretzky and the Edmonton Oilers in the finals. Gretz didn't even score a single goal in that 83 finals. The 1980s New York Islanders were one of the most impressive and most overlooked dynasties in hockey because come 1984, a new dynasty showed up to end the Islanders' run on top. So after four years in the NHL, the Edmonton Oilers were hungry for a Stanley Cup. They had some of the best forwards of all time, like Gretzky, Yari Curry, Mark Messier, and Glenn Anderson. They had a set of offensive defensemen headed by Paul Coffey, who currently holds the record for most goals by a D-man with 48, and they had one of the best clutch goalies ever in the NHL in Grant Fuhrer. They added some enforcers to the roster like Dave Semenko and Marty McSorley to protect, protect their big-name scorers, and they were ready to gun their way to five Stanley Cups. According to Marc Messier, the Oilers knew they were ready for a cup after they lost the 1983 Finals when he passed the Islanders' locker room, and rather than celebrating, they were exhausted and covered in ice packs. And apparently it worked. That gave them the inspiration they needed. The Oilers came back in 1984 and managed to beat the Islanders. Then they won another in 85, won two more in a row in 1987 and 88, and won their last one in 90. And I want you to hold on to that last one. In 1990, that one's special because, if you recall from the last episode, Wayne Gretzky was traded to the LA Kings in... <gasps> 1988. That last cup was without the Oilers' golden boy. <laughs> so you heard me talk about what the style of play that opened up offensive opportunities and allowed Gretzky to succeed, and this Oilers team lived and breathed offense, but the real linchpin to this success was their goaltending. Since the Oilers put so much emphasis on offense, their goalie was often left alone, so they needed a goalie who could make the big plays, and they had that in Hall of Famer Grant Fuhrer. In an interview, Fuhr once said that he didn't care if he let a goal in because his Oilers would score two or three more, so he didn't care about any of his stats as long as there was a W on the board. And that exact philosophy kept the Oilers winning. Now before I move on, I do want to talk about the 1990 Cup win, because this win sometimes isn't considered part of the Oilers' dynasty because Wayne Gretzky and Paul Coffey had been traded and Grant Fuhrer didn't play in this one due to injury. 
And I kind of want to push back at that against that only because I don't believe overall roster has anything to do with a dynasty. The style of play, that kernel at the center there, is still there, and they came through and won a cup because of it. But dynasties were coming to an end. The next one wouldn't come until about seven years later. In the late 90s and early 2000s, they were, the, this era was kind of the antithesis of the run-and-gun 80s. This time period was called the snatch-and-grab era, or sometimes called the neutral zone trap era. So this was an era, era of strong, gritty defensive hockey that saw heavy use of defensive play in the neutral zone meant to shut down the other team's momentum. And our dynasty here was a team that during the 80s and early 90s had been a strong run-and-gun team, but wasn't strong enough to make it very far in the playoffs, the Detroit Red Wings. Detroit had a well-stacked team that even tied the record for most wins in a season in the 95-96 season, but in the playoffs they hadn't been to the finals in years. When they got a new coach in Scotty Bowman, who had been the coach for five Montreal Canadiens Stanley Cup wins and a sixth win with Pittsburgh, they locked in on a defensive game. Uh, an assistant coach came in with a strategy he had seen the Czechoslovakian national team use to beat the Soviets called the left wing lock, which is basically a strategy where the team, when, when a team is moving back on defense, the left winger moves further back and joins the defenseman while the center and right wing uh, attack the puck carrier in the neutral zone. It's a very simple, but it's very simple, but effective. The left wing moving back with the defenseman means that the other team's forwards can't overwhelm and outnumber the uh, defense. So D Detroit had some of the best two-way forwards like Steve Iserman, Sergei Fedorov, and Igor Larionov. Um, they also had hard-hitting, grinding forwards who could wear down the other team and put the puck in the net like Brendan Shanahan. And they also had an all-star cast of defensemen like Larry Murphy, Nicholas Lidstrom, and Vladimir Konstantinov. Um, for their first win on that last one. After their Stanley Cup win in 97, Konstantinov was in a car accident that paralyzed him. But the Red Wings won their first cup in 97 in a sweep. Then they did it again in the next year when they, much to my chagrin, swept the Washington Capitals. This team won eight straight finals games. So there's two. But remember, we need a third win. And here's where I want to add the Detroit dynasty is the most tenuously a dynasty under my definition. The dynasty win was in 2002, which would give them three wins in six years. But they did it again. And their 98 Stanley Cup win was dedicated to Vladimir Konstantinov, who wheeled out, who was wheeled out onto the ice to lift the cup, and Detroit management was able to get special dispensation to put his name on the second cup with the rest of the team. There's a little feel-good moment for you. And honestly, there's more I could talk about in this Detroit team, but I have to move on to our last dynasty. Uh, I'm sure this Detroit dynasty will come up in future episodes. There's a lot to talk about here. This last one is the most recent dynasty in NHL history, the Chicago Blackhawks of the early 2010s. 
This dynasty is interesting because in 2005, the NHL implemented what's called a salary cap. Basically, every team has only so much money they're allowed to pay their team. Every player's salary has to add up to or less than the cap, which means that at the end of every season, when some players renegotiate their contract, teams have to drop players to make sure they have enough cap space for the big-name players, which makes going to the Stanley Cup multiple times difficult because you never really have that same roster. But since we're talking about them, we know the Blackhawks were able to do it, and the reason is strong two-way play. Across the board, two-way play. A team that was so two-way that if they were a 90s sitcom character, they'd be the woman who says she goes both ways and then winks a little to seduce a man. God, that's a gross trope, but you know where I'm going. The early 2010s were not a high-scoring era of hockey. In 2015, the Blackhawks won their third cup, No player scored more than 87 points on the season, which is a real step down from the high-scoring 80s. But our Blackhawks team was able to capitalize on this. They had forwards who were also strong on defense, like Jonathan Taves, Patrick Kane, and Marian Hossa. And they had defensemen who were played a strong offensive game too, like Duncan Keith, Brent Seabrook, and Dustin Bufflin. But what got this team to cup wins in 2010, 2013, and 2015 were their young grinders they were calling up to the majors from the farm teams, or the minors. The top big names were scoring the big goals, but these young players kept Chicago under the salary cap and were able to grind and tire out the other team to make sure they kept winning. The thing about dynasties is that in terms of prolonged success, these are very difficult to maintain. None of these teams have won a Stanley Cup since their dynasty, except for Detroit, who won their last one in 2009. But also because, as I mentioned earlier, a dynasty has to typify the style of play for that era, and the game is fluid, it keeps changing. Wayne Gretzky himself once said that he never would have scored the numbers he did in the 80s if he were playing in the 2010s. And as the game changes, we see different markers for success, whether that be run and gun, or clutch and grab, or even something in between. But earlier I posed the question that if my purpose here is to teach you enough to talk about hockey, then why talk about something only I would ever want to talk about? And the answer is a two-parter. Part one is the same reason people post images of funny sentences Duolingo makes you translate. You're never, ever going to have to say, is your cat from Cuba in real life? But Duolingo isn't teaching you to ask that particular question. It's teaching you to construct a question. It's teaching you to construct a question where the answer is yes or no. And it's teaching you to construct a second-person possessive. The sentence itself is a vehicle for the real lesson. Today I've told you about three different eras of hockey, how those teams were able to succeed in those eras, and what big-name players were instrumental to that success. Isn't that cool? I don't even have to do one of these for each of these teams or each of these eras because this one vehicle let me connect all of them for you. And the second part of the answer comes into why I even bothered to make a quantitative definition of dynasty, or why I bothered to theorize about how a team even becomes a dynasty. I plainly laid out what I believe a dynasty to be in my thesis, so that if, while listening, you disagreed at any point, or if my reasoning just didn't resonate, you could push back with your own definition, an antithesis. 
And maybe you believe a team who wins two cups in a row should get their own special category as a dynasty. I mean, truly, that's no small feat. But either way, you could push back, and from there we could synthesize a new definition, since the topic is just so fluid and squishy. And that's right, rather than give this a satisfying conclusion, I use this time to teach my friends a simplified definition of the Hegelian dialectic. It sounds complicated, but it's not. You're welcome. Have a good one, y'all. There's a lot going on, but this the dynasty. Uh, the crazy man's keeping me up, I'm not sleeping. My fit too fresh to be doing the housekeeping. The maids cost too much, started cleaning my own closet. Living childhood fantasies, dealing with grown problems. Got a brand new bass, you keep me good like the music. If the rock is here, throw up your diamonds and hood cubits. No ID said it's time to take these goofy niggas out rap. Drop bombs over Baghdad on these SoundCloud outcasts. I stray away to say the way my days would be without rap. My mind drifts to back before the shot was labeled shot rack. Then Chief Keefe dropped in 20